Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Peter Lehrman and this is Masters in Small Business M&A. This show is an ongoing exploration into the vast and undercovered world of small business M&A, where we interview both the proven and the emerging owners, operators, investors, and advisors whose strategies and methods for transaction success have been put to the test. The show aims to surface the nuanced intricacies, the key ingredients, and the important factors that can improve your decision-making in your own journey in the world of small business M&A. This podcast is produced by Axial, an online platform that makes it easier for business owners and their M&A advisors to find, research, and privately connect with a diverse mix of professional buyers of small businesses. In addition to learning more about Axial, you can find this podcast show notes, edited transcripts, and many other related resources, all for free at Axial.com. Peter Lehrman is the CEO of Axial. All opinions expressed by Peter and podcast guests do not reflect the views or opinions of Axial. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Podcast guests may have ongoing client relationships with Axial. Hey everybody, welcome back. My name is Peter Lehrman. Welcome to Masters in Small Business m and I've got a fantastic guest today. Really excited to have him on the show. Sang Cho, co-founder and CEO of Cooperative Laundry, has a really, really interesting career, 100% in and around the commercial laundry business. Not a lot of us know about this category, so I'm really excited to dive in. Sang, thank you so much for making time to hop on the show with me. Thanks, Peter. Good to finally get it done. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of different places to get started, but we decided let's just lay out the commercial laundry landscape a little bit for listeners. It's not a laundry, it's not a landscape or a category that gets a lot of airtime. I haven't heard it talked about on a lot of other private equity or M&A or owner-operator podcasts. So let's give it its due, you know, it's 15 minutes of fame and just sort of lay it out there. Yeah. Commercial laundry is, we'll get into this later, but you know, I've looked at a lot of businesses. It is one of, if not the hardest business that I could imagine, really because there's so many elements to it. It's still very much a mom and pop business. So you'll see mom and pop dry cleaners that obviously have to process all the linen. So they have to know laundry really, really well. Then they have to transport it. So they got to know logistics really, really well. They have labor. So they have, there's all kind of labor management, certainly in big cities like New York and in California and LA that all kinds of workman's comp and Department of Labor issues that you got to be a pro at. There's contracts, so you need a good lawyer. There's complex accounting with depreciation and all kinds of complicated capital structures if you have different loans with different types of lenders and APL maybe. And it's kind of a relentless 24-7 grind. You know, the hotels or hospitals, which is predominantly what most mom and pop laundries are servicing, the, the, the uniform workwear is pretty mature. You see those with like Cintas and, and Unifirst and, and those bigger shops, but the hotels and hospitals, they operate 24-7. They don't have enough laundry or linens to go a few days without service. So they need service seven days a week. You know, there's no Christmas. There's no, I can't imagine, I can't remember the last time I was able to have like a holiday party with all my employees because, you know, everyone's working throughout the day. It's a lot of times, a lot of the companies I know of that I'm friendly with are operating, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, they're literally turning their equipment over from shift to shift and they need that just to like squeeze by on like 
on like a basic amount of margin to feed their families and and uh, service their debt. So yeah, it, it is a really really difficult enterprise. But I hope Matt probably talks some people out of the laundry business just now. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's a really 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 tough business. Who who dominates it? Does anyone dominate the business? And how, how is it structured in terms of obviously you want the facilities to be near the major customers that you serve, right? So I'm sure there's a geographic, a major geographic element of this, but what does market share look like? Is, is there, are there significant market share owners or not really? Yeah. I don't know of any, whatever so-called national players in either the healthcare or hotel space. There are companies that are like multi-regional, like we are, but most companies are going deeper versus going wider. And I think that's just because, like you said, it's wash and return. So normally what you pick up on Monday, you deliver on Tuesday. And then what you picked up on Tuesday, you deliver on Wednesday. So our facilities, if we're more than a two to three hour drive away, that's really pushing it. But if we're more than two or three hours away, it becomes a pretty hard service service proposition. Before we jump into like your story in this category, let's just make sure that it's clear exactly sort of what is the core motion that a commercial laundry facility executes in any given day or any given week or any given month? Is it you have a series of geographically sort of concentrated customers and are you picking up typically every day and returning every day? Like what is the core motion that the commercial laundry operator makes? Yeah. So just soil the soil the clean. You pick up the soil at the at the let's use hotels because that's what we do. You pick up the soil at the hotel within some window, usually a two hour window. You bring it back to the laundry. You sort it all because you got to separate the linens from the towels. You wash it. You dry it. There's all kinds of levels of automation in there that varies wildly. Then you have to fold iron it if it needs ironing. Fold it. Stack it, count it, bill for it, pack it, put it back into the laundry cart, deliver it without making any mistakes. Because if Four Seasons gets a holiday and sheet, they're going to be pretty pissed off. And then when you deliver the clean, you can't take a break because then you just picked up a whole nother turn of dirty that you got to do all over again. And in that process, you know, you probably have, I don't know, several hundred employees that are touching things and feeding things and moving things around and invoicing things and managing your business. And that's happening for the most part, seven days a week. Some markets are lucky to have hol- certain holidays off, although that's the exception not to the rule because hotels are busy during the holidays. And, and same thing goes for hospitals. The only difference in hospitals, which gives it a little bit more flexibility, is that if you break your arm and go to the hospital, you're not going to complain about the hospital bed you know, having some wrinkles on it. Right? You're just like, my arm hurts. Let me in the bed. And, and so there's less of a quality, quality issue on the hospital front, but same problem, you know, it's, it's high volume. You got to get a lot of dirty stuff clean real fast. Can't mix it. Can't lose it. Got to bill accurately. And you got to do that every day, 365. And what are contracts like? Are they multi-year? Are they single year? Like what, what is the general, what are the sort of primary structure, structural elements of like a contract? You contract with a hotel what are the key elements of a contract look like duration terms and yeah we're all over the place ironically my preference is to have a contract that is as short as humanly possible for once a decision i made helped our business because <laughs> we were able to adjust pricing pretty quickly with inflation 
affecting our business on on multiple fronts, like like a lot of other small businesses. But I've had five year contracts. I've had thirty day kind of thirty day renewing contracts. I'd say the bulk of our contracts are anywhere from one to three years, and and that's probably the case across across the country. Okay, got it. Yeah, most of the time you hear people talk about wanting to have really long contracts, not really short contracts. Yeah, you know, laundry is weird. Like I, I've spoken to a lot of private equity guys about laundry and they're like, oh my God, it sounds like the most incredible business. And I said, you know, tell me why. And it's all the buzzwords you hear about, right? It's like, oh, you guys have recurring revenue and contract contractual agreements and you have, what are the other ones, you know? high barriers to entry, right? Like all the stuff. It's like we fit like a MBA case study of businesses you want to invest into. The problem is just like doing it every day, right? It's it's just it's just a hard way to it's a hard way to make business every day. I think I think there's a lot of great things about the business. I know basically how much revenue I'm gonna pick up every single day. I can I can pinpoint it to a couple percentage points and I can forecast that out with a high level of accuracy, you know, out a year or two years. I have a wide availability of customers. They're easily identifiable and and they're within a pretty defined service region. And, and these are all great, but there's a lot of people in the market. There's a lot of mom and pops in the market still. And I think that that is good in that there's people servicing the linen and it's a hard hard business, but it's bad in, in that there's it's hard to capture synergies when you're competing against 25 really small companies that are willing to do anything to survive. Right. What's customer concentration look like? That's another part of the like private equity template. You know, there some of them are capable of and comfortable sort of running at that fire, but a lot of them get a little bit queasy. When you lose a customer in the laundry business, do you typically lose? I mean, are you are you losing single di- single digits of of revenue, or does it tend to be a more significant hit to revenue when you lose a customer? Yeah, we've gotten a little bit more confident. So as recently as we've gotten more comfortable with our business and our and our technology. I would say that the vast like in my in my first laundry company, I had over a hundred customers. No customer made up more than four or five percent of my business. Uh, we have a little bit more concentration now, but we're still not double digit. But I think the question is like if you lose Marriott Hotel A, you're not going to lose Marriott Hotel B, C, D, and E that you service. They're all pretty they're all they operate as as independent assets and properties. Why is that? Hotels have their own personality. The general manager, which is basically the king or queen of that that asset, might have a, a company they've used forever and ever and, and want to bring in. Yeah, I, I, I don't really know. It's very... It's very location specific. It's location specific, but it has just always been pretty volatile from a transaction standpoint, whether that means changing out suppliers or changing linen brands or a host of things, changing owners, you know, hotels change ownerships all the time. And it happens pretty quickly that they change flags, you know, it goes from a Hilton to a Marriott and then Marriott's got its own idea of doing things versus Hilton. It just seems like there's not a lot of permanency in the hotel industry. And as a result, hotel suppliers are kind of reacting to that volatility also. We've got like just the, we've hit the tip of the iceberg in terms of just the basics on commercial laundry now, but at least Anybody who's never heard of it before can follow along for the rest of the conversation. In the world of small business M&A and owning and operating small businesses, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of searching for businesses that gets done by people who are looking to, you know, search for and then buy and then operate a business. And a lot of times they have no historical connection to the business. They're just searching for a business to buy. Your story starts out totally differently. You've got a, a, a clear connection to laundry. And in addition to having a really clear connection to laundry through just through your family, which we'll get into, I just want to start sort of there. You also have the benefit of now having at least had two lives in commercial laundry. You know, you've had an opportunity to to run and operate and scale a business, to make a whole bunch of great decisions and a whole bunch of bad decisions, and then to turn a new leaf and start over a handful of years later. And so I want to get sort of create time for the whole arc, but just take us into dry cleaning within your family and your family business as, as day one. Help us understand sort of how that got started for you. When did you get connected to the business? How old were you when you started working, you know, alongside your folks? Just tell tell a little bit of the story before you took it over and, and scale it. I love talking about this, you know, especially preaching and promoting the Korean American spirit and the immigrant mentality. And I'm sure we all know like a Korean dry cleaner or a Korean nail salon you know, growing up, I came to America when I was three, two or three years old. And my parents have owned a dry cleaner as, as, as long as I can remember. So like weekends, it was not unusual for me to spend an entire weekend inside the dry cleaner because my mom was working the counter and my dad was pressing shirts in the back. So like it was, it was just our life. You know, it was, it was a retail shop. Imagine what, what you might imagine in a Main Street USA. We, we grew up in, I grew up in the Midwest near Indiana. And it was a wonderful upbringing. I'd never really thought anything of it until I got a little bit older. And and then, you know, if I needed 30 bucks to do something, take my girlfriend to the movies, you know, my dad's like, my dad came up with this deal where he's like, all right, it's 50 cents a shirt, which at the time I thought he was like exploiting my, you know, my, my young energy, but come to understand now that it was like the worst economic transaction in the history of capitalism that he was making with himself. So I used, you know, so that was my thing. And I, I knew all the guys and, you know, if I needed to make a few hundred bucks, I could I knew the routes that tipped well in the city, right? Because, you know, we, we ended up moving to, to New York City when I was like 14 or 15 years old. So I, I knew like Calvin Klein's apartment, I could always count on a $100 tip there. So I'd, I'd come in for that delivery. So it was fun. It was, I never planned on getting into it. I just, it was my family's thing and, and we always did okay. Like we weren't rich, you know, but we had a nice house in Jersey and I went to a nice public school and, and everything was good. And then I graduated from high school, got into a, a university that I got rejected from all the schools I wanted to go to and got into the university that I didn't really want to go to. So I decided to join the military. So I graduated high school on Friday and I left for boot camp on Monday, went to the Marines and did that, you know, through 9-11 and, you know, ended up deploying to Iraq. I was a, and I, I didn't go for like a sexy career. I was like the easiest one in the recruiting office. They're like, yep, sign me up. Infantry, Nope. You, you know, I scored, I scored pretty high on the test. I was like, well, there's counterintelligence. Like, nope, nope, nope. I want to be, you know, like, you know, that movie Platoon, like, like Stanley Kubrick, like put me in, like, I want to be full metal jacket, regular infantryman. And so, you know, I didn't get like a signing bonus. I didn't know that that was such a thing, but so it was a terrible move on my part, but I ended up becoming a combat, combat infantryman and, and deployed. And, and when I got back home, went to university and the school was great. They gave me a ton of credits for my military service. So I graduated pretty quickly, decided to major in philosophy. So I was a philosophy major with a, I was a combat infantryman with a philosophy degree looking for a job in something. I had no idea. I love it. Unique, minimally. I was, I was living at home and my dad's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I don't know, man. Like, 
I got to do something. I was like, I had, I think I, I came home from Iraq with like $14,000, which I was like, oh my God, I'm so rich. Like, this is incredible. Like, I never have to work again. And that money obviously ran out pretty quick. So my dad said, come, come work at the laundry, you know, come, come work at the dry cleaner full time. And, you know, and I thought about it and I said, yeah, why not? You know, I'll do this for a couple of years and, and then I'll get out of here, you know, try to become a New York City fireman or, or, or a cop or something like that. So I was going to go for my dad. And pretty quickly, I noticed this weird thing where he had this one hotel account and still doing mostly retail, but he had this one hotel account. And every time I would deliver to this hotel, you know, they were, they were so nice. They offered me water, this beautiful lobby. I'd pick up a hefty amount of dry cleaning and laundry. And, and I, I noticed pretty quickly that this was way better than waiting for John Smith to walk in with his two suits and four shirts. And, and one day I, I remember this, this guy just yelling at my mom like saying a lot of bad words because his shirt was stained or something like that. And I, I was just, I had just come back from this hotel and just being like super pissed off. And I think it was August in, in the city too. So that wasn't a good feeling in a, in a laundry. And I remember just telling my dad like, dad, what are we doing? Like we need more hotels. Right. Like, Switch oh, away you know, from retail and, and move to the yeah, commercial side of the whole business. Exactly. And you know, he had all the things, right? Like I'm not good enough. I don't speak English. I don't know how to write contracts. I don't know this, that, the other thing. And, and to his credit, he kind of just was like, look, if you can get more, I'll, I'll work as hard as, as much as volume as you can bring in from the hotel. So we six X his business in a year. I mean, I, I don't even remember the numbers, but you know, we went from like a 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. business to like a 4 a.m. to 2 a.m. business. And I'm super pumped making making good money. And my dad's like, what the hell just happened? This is crazy. And like a, I don't know, 2,000 square foot dry cleaner in, on First Avenue in, in Manhattan. So we branched out and I decided we were going to build this crazy laundry in, in Long Island. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what a tunnel washer was, which is like this washing machine that's the size of a school bus. And I kind of just like hung my whole life out there. And, and in many ways, my, my family did also for, for me and built this crazy laundry company. You know, it was like just one example of tell you how, how little I knew. I bought this building in the middle of nowhere, like an hour and 20 minutes away in New York City traffic off the LIE. And I installed the, the dryers that come, these industrial dryers. And when they came in, I couldn't set them upright. Like I couldn't install them because I hadn't done the math on the roof clearance. So it was like, it, I remember it was winter. So I ripped the roof off and I ran the whole laundry. I mean, I hope no one from whatever town that was in is, is hearing this podcast, but I ran this laundry with no roof for the better part of two months. I remember it was snowing and raining and, <laughs> and we just ran this place and getting more customers. And, you know, and then we bought our largest competitor out of bankruptcy and we just had this kind of thing. And we, we grew that business to 40 million in revenues from zero, 600 something employees, just utter an awesome chaos every day in, in the span of eight or nine years. That you just mentioned, you, you bought your largest competitor out of bankruptcy. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So again, I, I'm pretty, I've never had the fortune or problem of having worked for anyone other than I, you know, Uncle Sam. So I'm very comfortable being honest about what I don't know. And I remember my lawyer called me and said, hey, this laundry company just filed for bankruptcy. Do you want to buy them? And I said, yeah, but they're bankrupt. So do we just get the business? And he's like, well, no, you have to be, you have to go through this process and chapter 11, they might do a seven. And I didn't know what any of these things meant. I was like, when can I get the keys? Like, when can I start? And he's like, well, no, you know, like we have to go through a process. It's public. And 
he's like, why don't we put a stalking horse bit in? I was like, what does horses have to do with this? You know, and I had no idea what, what he was talking about. And that was really my first exposure to doing something pretty, pretty meaningful. And we, we did place a stalking horse bid. We did fight off a lot of other potential buyers. You know, we were in court an, an awful lot. We ended up fighting the, the business founders who found their own backing and put in a competing bid. I had to learn how to convince existing lenders to not credit bid against me and, or even what a credit bid was. And it was, it took us six months, but that was the rocket fuel that, that helped us grow our, our business and kind of put us on the map. We were top five. Did you add another facility with that, with the acquisition there? Did you add another facility? Yeah, we added our biggest facility. So the company that we acquired out of bankruptcy, both from a footprint and revenue standpoint was probably about double our size. So they were, and they had been around forever. I mean, they were like a hundred year old company. So it wasn't, it wasn't an easy fight. The family that owned it, they, they didn't want to lose it, but it was, it seemed really like looking back, I'm just listening to myself talk right now, wondering like, what the hell was I thinking? But at the, at the time it, it seemed like a perfectly rational thing to do. And now when you look back on it, what makes it so, so irrational or what are the things, like when you look back, what, what did you not know? I mean, that's kind of the story now, right? And, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, Peter, but just generally speaking, like when I talk to other entrepreneurs is, is just try and remove the complexity out of your life. And it was just really complicated. It was like, I'm not sure I needed, if I was just a little bit more patient, you know, that business BK'd for a reason, that facility BK'd for a reason. And I've been more patient, a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit more careful for the purpose of making things easier, knowing that things are already going to be hard enough. I think Warren Buffett has a great saying where he says, you know, I don't try and jump over nine foot poles. I look for one foot poles that I can step over. And, and stepping over poles is hard. And business is hard. Laundry is freaking hard. And I think I didn't do myself, myself any favors in, in trying to make it easier along the way. Your next sort of big transaction milestone comes after acquiring this business out of bankruptcy, if I understand the chronology correctly, somehow you begin to catch the eye of a number of either investment firms or private equity firms or investment bankers. Maybe that was because you, you began to get some press on the business and as a top employer or as an up and coming entrepreneur, I'm not exactly sure how you began to sort of get on the radar of, of this whole world of, of M&A and bankers and, and private equity, but it happens, right? And so let's get into that. Like, let, let, let's get into that. Tell us a little bit about the transaction that you did there, the nature of the transaction, the reason at the time for doing the transaction, and then we'll, we'll keep going from there. Yeah. Well, look, I, I, you know, I was 28, 29 years old, feeling really good about myself with this big company and hundreds of employees and, and, and 40 everyone's telling me how awesome yeah. I am. It's a pretty big business at this point too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, I'm giving myself a lot of pats on the back and I'm going to a lot of fancy galas and parties and being invited to things that I was invited to before as a combat infantryman with a degree in philosophy. And it was cool. It was awesome. So invariably, I met a lot of Wall Street people who liked hanging out with me and, and I enjoyed hanging out with them. And I don't hang out with a lot of them anymore because I think, no offense to Wall Street people, but you know, it's, I, there's, not a lot of, there's not a lot of connection there. And when I, when I talk about my day and they talk about their day, there's just not a lot of, there's not a lot of overlap for us to have a drink on. But, you know, I met all these, I met investment bankers and I was like, wow, cool. So you guys, basically your job is to fly around America and meet other bank companies and just like put them together with rich people that want to buy them. And then you get a fee of six to 8%. <laughs> like, that's incredible. And they're, you know, 
no offense again no offense to wall street guys but they're like yeah dude like i closed a billion dollar deal last year and you know and so like there's i got so caught up in it that i forgot about what i was doing right i was running this company with hundreds of people like real human beings not ftes right i still try to not get swept up in thinking of my business as a widget which is so stupid i think you know i just try to be really specific when i talk about my company and my people i went down this process met really fancy people. I went to a lot of fancy parties, played at fancy golf courses. And I did a deal that I was not ready for. I did a deal. I took a ton of money. I took a lot of money off the table. I sold majority control. Had no idea what that was. Gave everyone a lot of high fives and then thought I still owned my company. And I didn't. And your plan as part of this saying was to take some money off the table. You'd build something more or less out of nothing with your father and your mother. And then you obviously leading the charge at some point, moving more and more into the commercial laundry side of things. And the plan was to take some money off the table, but also to continue to grow the business and to be, you know, long-term chief executive, right? I mean, you weren't selling out, you were taking some off the table, rolling the rest into the deal and looking to hit the next set of major growth milestones. Is that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I had this whole PPM, you know, or offering memo or whatever whatever it's called that had this whole vision of building five more laundries. There was just, I didn't have a, a plan for that. It was just words on a piece of paper. You know, I didn't, I had really good bankers. I guess I should say that. I had really, really good bankers. And I just wasn't ready for the responsibility, for, for the covenants, for the oversight, and and I blame myself. Like I I don't have any ill will towards anyone in that in that process. Like I I ultimately signed all those documents, and, and it was but it was an incredible experience. I mean, it was an incredible experience to see the res- types of resources that can that money could buy, that experience can buy. You know, they brought in some excellent people. You know, the the CFO they brought in, I'm, who I'm still close with to this day. You know, came to my wedding. They really opened my eyes to all the things that I had done wrong. Now, the problem is they were opening my eyes to it while, while I no longer owned it. Saying when you, when you look back on this chapter saying, what do you think you principally did wrong? Was it the way that the transaction was structured? I mean, the fact that they own the business doesn't, I mean, that may have been right or it may have been wrong from your perspective, but that, to me, that doesn't seem like, you know, that just seems like a decision and you can either retain ownership or, or, or they can have ownership. But what, when you look back on it, what, what do you think you really feel like you got wrong in terms of the structure of the transaction? Was it? Yeah. I, I, you know, when I, when I read a lot about like venture investors, right, they take uh, venture got, uh, companies, they take like $100 million and they have this crazy burn rate and then they just expect that more money will come. That, that's kind of what I had assumed, right? And I don't think, I didn't have a really good plan for, you know, X millions of dollars comes into my company, you know, and, and here's the exact capital deployment plan. Here's what I'm spending on equipment. Here's what I'm sending on people. Here's how I'm going to up, upgrade my staff. I didn't think about any of that. It was just money's in, plug all the holes, business as usual. Oh, what, what do you mean we have to pay all this debt? You know, what's, what's a mez loan? Yeah, a little, little tongue in cheek, but not really. Like I didn't understand. I didn't take the time to really consider all the changes that this money was bringing in. And I think if you're going to bring in private equity money, I can't speak for venture, but if you're going to bring in private equity capital, just I would have read those documents a little bit more closely. And I probably would have picked a different firm that was more equity focused versus 
credit focused. And, and there's no way that I would have even known while I was so busy congratulating myself what that difference was when I was 29 years old golfing at all these fancy places. When you talk about covenants and like your lack of readiness for the covenants, are you talking about debt-related covenants or are you talking about other covenants? or Performance-related, debt, performance, yeah. Okay. And was there any sort of like adverse developments in the business that made those covenants more out of reach or was were they just was it just sort of normal course of business and the covenants nonetheless were not in the right place yeah there was a there was a pretty significant event hurricane sandy 6 feet of water kind of came came through our laundry facility which was devastating you can imagine you know 6 feet of water in any business certainly one with as much electronics and and motors and systems as we had so that was kind of the the start of things going bad and we didn't have any redundancy, I lost a ton of customer, didn't have the right risk in place, risk management in place, insurance in place. So like that, but I don't want to blame that. That was just the fire starter. The logs and and the twigs were all sitting there ready to be lit. And so Sir, Hurricane Sandy, that was what, 2012? It was 2012, yeah, 2012. And when did you do the transaction roughly? 2011. Okay. And your last day was December 31st. You were telling me before we pushed record. That was Somewhat mutually agreed to, somewhat <laughs> not mutually agreed to. Yeah. You wound down on December 31st of 2012, or was that the following year? Yes, it was 2012. And it took a big cooling off period then, right? And yeah. So, you know, w- when you look back at that chapter now, I mean, what, what do you say to entrepreneurs now about what you learned through that chapter? I mean, what were the big takeaways? What were the big learnings from all the growth, all the success, a ton of hard work. You did a lot of things right. You probably moved your business into the commercial category and away from retail. That sounds like a, probably a pretty reasonable decision, particularly if you wanted to scale. It's not like it was nothing. It wasn't like it was all disaster and bad decisions all along the way. It sounds like there were some really good decisions and a lot of good hard work, but obviously also some really tough lessons learned. Like, How do you size that chapter up? I, you know, until recently, I hadn't. I kind of just moved on and you know, I spent some time back at my company after I got fired or, or quit or whatever it is. I learned so much from that. I don't look back at that time with a lot of negative, negativity anymore. I feel like I've, I've learned a lot from raising money from an institutional investor and then living by their rules was foundationally important to how I think about running my business now. And importantly, how I think about where my business might be in five, six, seven, ten years. So, like decisions that I'm making today, I'm thinking about the private equity investor that might buy us in seven years, and I'm thinking about how we're structuring our our operations and the team that we have in place with that in mind, with the expectation that that level of professionalism and structure is going to be a requirement to harvest a good multiple, a good value. And it it's changed how I analyze my business. I never built models. I never thought about ROI analysis. Everything was very shoot from the hip. And I think taking the time to model things and do things a little bit slower, removing complexity, which I think is how I use models, not to drive strategy, but to just maybe help formulate a clearer picture of what I want to achieve and then and then make a decision that's still very much, I think, I, I'm trying to keep that emotional, the emotional gut and collaborative with my team vision of what I think we should do, but 
the, the way in which I analyze the business and the way in which I think about what a future buyer like the guys that invested in my last business would want. Those are things that I think about almost almost daily. And does that is, how is that manifested in in the way that you think about the business? Because I've heard people think about I've heard that before, and I, I wonder sometimes whether or not it creates the wrong kind of paranoia or whether it's really really helpful. So I'd love to hear like you talk a little bit about the specifics of that. Like when you're thinking about the end and working backwards from the end, where the end is potentially the sale of the business to a corporate buyer or to a sophisticated and, and rigorous private equity buyer. It sounds like you use that model a lot to think about things and work backwards from things. What's the most productive way that you sort of use that mental model? Like where, where, does, it, where does it show up in the way that you run the company? I think the best way is just the data management. How is, is my business set up in such a way where, and this is just one example, but a very important one for me, is my business set up in such a way where I can, through one PDF or one portal, see a dashboard, see a set of metrics that have a high level of accuracy to reality that can tell me something about what just happened and what might happen in the future and happens with a lot of, without a lot of human inter- interaction. And this dashboard or this tool, this ERP or whatever system you're using, we're using all those things, but the ability to make those decisions and to see those trends quickly is, is I think, what private equity companies are really trying to do through how they organize their data and organize, you know, like more often than not, the first replacement or the first hire they make is a really good CFO. And that has enabled us, that lesson that I learned from, from my time being owned by a PE shop has allowed me to make really, really smart decisions that I'm not sure would have been so obvious to me and, and certainly wouldn't be so. And, and I'm someone who's done laundry, as my dad would say, since I'm like five years old. But a lot of decisions I made with equipment or with how I utilize labor or, or certain debt deals we've made, I mean, the list goes on and on, but transportation costs, I think our ability to analyze our data really, really quickly and know that it's not wrong has been a big part of what I learned from my last company, but also what we want to incorporate more of as we work towards wherever cooperative laundry is going to be in, in five or seven years. And what's gone into that level of, I mean, what have you had to do in, in order to have that level of data access, data management, data visibility, the just the observability of, of all of that data? What, what have been the investments that you've made to do that? Where do those investments take form and take shape? Just tell us, like, what have you done in order to be able to have those dashboards and that tooling today? How does that contrast with, with what you had when you were running Prestige, the Chapter One business? Well, the Chapter One business, we just had QuickBooks and Microsoft Excel. And you know, I've kind of required across the board at my company that minimally you guys all need, you know, all my, all my senior managers, you guys all need to know Excel as well, if not better than I do. And, you know, people I've seen, I think my Excel skills are like C plus at best. You know, some people think I'm A plus and it varies widely, but like, if you can't work your way through multiple four five point and statement and if then equation in Excel, then you're going to get lost pretty quickly in whatever project we're working on. So if you're trying to integrate Salesforce if customers select this on a survey, then whatever, then you're going to get lost pretty quickly. So I think from a basic level, 
the first thing that we did was we made sure everyone wanted to get on the same page, that everyone thought this was important. And if you're not, that's okay. I'll write you a really nice recommendation letter and you can go work somewhere else. And the first thing is just everyone believing that these dashboards are important. Everyone believing that these dashboards and reports are, it's paramount that they're accurate and understands where all this data is coming from and where it needs to go. So we integrate to an ERP system. We have a floor management software for our actual operations. We use salesforce.com for our customer side CRM. And we tie all those through a series of automated and semi-automated reports that get pushed out daily to everyone. And that's the other thing too, I think it's really important is the level of transparency that we have with our information, I think is unusual. It was certainly unusual for me relative to my last business. Like as a mom and pop, I was like, I really guarded those things pretty closely. So nobody really knew if we had a bad day or if we had a good day. I think the really bad days were obvious and the really good days were probably obvious too, but those little small incremental improvements we could have made, you know, nothing gets me more excited when a transportation manager calls me and says, Hey, I noticed that if we send this delivery out, you know, four hours earlier, the average delivery time is 45 minutes shorter. So I'm going to call the customer. I'm going to get with service and change the customer's delivery time to four hours before what it is right now. Like that's amazing. Right. And you know, 45 minutes of delivery times a driver that makes whatever 28, 30 bucks an hour, plus his helper, plus fuel, plus, you know, extra time. I mean, you're talking over the course of a year, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in savings multiplied by a host of, you know, thousands of other examples like that. And that, that obsession, which is what it needs to be like that, that ruthless obsession, it, it needs to be from the whole team. Like I, need to, I as, a, as the owner need to be providing the resources. I, as the owner need to be providing the capacity the my, my senior managers need to be providing the same things plus access for questions, vision for how this is going to play out. And then middle managers and operators need to be executing those things. And it needs to be happening flawlessly. Otherwise, it's just that. And the, the really scary thing about that is if it if any one of those parts breaks down, the garbage, the data just becomes garbage, which is the most dangerous thing that could happen. I mean, do you think that that's one of the key advantages that you have at Cooperative Laundry? Just that level of capability relative to, I mean, there's a lot of mom and pop operators. I wouldn't think that a lot of them are operating with that as like one of their top priorities and, and executing it with the benefit of a really, really hard set of war stories that you have from, from your time running Prestige. I would think that that would be one of the sources of real advantage for you guys. Yeah, I, I think so too. I, I think it's also, I, I've, I've met a lot of mom and pop operators, you know, a lot of Korean American mom and pop operators. They, they actually do it pretty well. You know, they might not be doing it in, in Oracle, but, but they know their business really well. Like if you go to a deli operator in, in New York City and say like, hey, how much did you pay for eggs? You know, like they, they know their numbers. They're like, oh yeah, you know, we bought 400 dozen of eggs last year, last week. And we threw out, you know, 22 dozen. So we're buying 300, you know, like they, they know their numbers at a scaring degree. You know, what, some of the, the entrepreneurs that scare me are like the really smart ones that haven't run anything before. <laughs> they scare me. I worry for them because they don't know their business. They don't know the numbers and they don't know their process of even getting the numbers or the processes that cause the numbers to be the output. And I think that getting comfortable with your numbers with your economics and with your data in a way where it's, it's like your, your operating language. Like when you're talking to your colleagues and you're talking about the same thing every single day and you know the trends like, like the back of your hand better than the back of your hand, 
then that leads to a really natural desire to, to make things better. It's easier. It's less complicated, less, com- you know, less complexities theme for us. And that's what we focus on. And, and, and the thing that frustrates me about when I think about prestige a little bit is I could have done that back then. I could have upgraded the systems. Might not be what we have right now, but I, I definitely could have done it back then. And I think what frustrates me about it now is that there are endless number of systems that you can commit to that are really affordable, relatively speaking. And, and I, just, I just really believe in, in data and really believe in trend, trend analysis and, and that that's how you can make things better really quickly. I'd love to talk about just leadership a little bit and like leadership for you over this, you know, 10 to 15 year period. When you think about the, when you try and close your eyes and think back to the way you were running Prestige and think about the way that you're now running Cooperative Laundry, what do you think are the biggest changes that you've made to just how you think about your role as the leader? What are some big changes in just the way you practice leadership within the company? What's changed? What stayed the same across the two chapters? Yeah, you know, I've, I've read all the books. There's the delivering happiness, kind of everything's great, you know, at book. And then there's the extreme ownership, Navy SEAL, like, you know, book. And I think my change has been one of thinking that I'm so awesome that I can do everything and I can control every outcome. I just have to work a little bit longer or, or work a little bit harder. First, two, to trusting people trying to trust people and not trusting people per se, but coming to an understanding with my team that X, Y, and Z is important. And as long as X, Y, and Z are happening, then leave them alone. And the one, one kind of hiring line, the one liner I like to call is no surprises. You know, I think surprises are just deadly for, for any business, but really, really in mine. So we had a lot of surprises in my first company. Every day was a unique and exciting, <laughs> exciting day in the worst possible way you, you can imagine. But now it's, hey, we have the same business, we have the same customers, we operate in the same facility, we basically have the same people, we work, operate the same hours, we charge the same price. Like, how, how, do we, how do we make this more repetitive? And how do we make this really, really boring? You know, I, I never made money when I was really busy. Like money was made when, when things were running well and I was sitting at home with nothing to do. And I think that that's my job. You know, my job is to get everyone what they need and get the hell out of their way. Who do you feel like you've learned the most from over over the chapters? I mean, when you think about just your bias for simplicity, the way you think about and the way you just answer the leadership question, you know, where have you learned these things from? Have you learned these from your mistakes? Have you learned these from other people? Like who have you learned from? Who's been influencing you along the way? Yeah, I've learned from other Entrepreneurs have a host of well. First, first, I, there's a bunch of things, and I should say this because other entrepreneurs are listening. YPO or something like that. Do that if you're if you're young, if you're if you're under, I think it's fifty or whatever the cutoff is. You know, YPO. I think there's something called like Envisage or something like that. What, whatever those are, like get yourself once a month in front of other business owners and just like hash it out. Be honest and and enjoy it. And I was in YPO probably for, I don't know, four or five years. And it was, it was incredible. So certainly folks at YPO, other fellow entrepreneurs that are good friends of mine who are really smart running similar type of businesses, not laundry, but like a warehousing business or a cookie, a cookie business, you know, they sell, you know, retail cookies, all kinds of 
other entrepreneurs can really shed light on. And if they're friendly with you, I find I find a lot of them to be just like like painfully honest, which is nice. And customers, I have maybe like a half dozen customers that I still keep in touch with pretty regularly, and they've been great to understand where I have stumbled, you know, where I've gotten better. They've been with me at my last company. They've been with my company now. And I think I think some combination of all those networks have led me to obsess over simplicity, really focus on execution, but but all within the framework of some very well-defined mission. So we're, we're KPI hunting at all times, right? And I don't know. It, it, it works for me now. Maybe that'll all change. But for now, we we are we are just really focused on on keeping things simple because that's what I think the Elon Musks of the world are doing. You know, like when he when he's building out his gigafactories. Not that he's someone I necessarily want to emulate for for other reasons, but but I think when you when you listen to him talk about what he went through building his first factory and how he removed automation or or how he thought about the cost of labor or he thought about his energy consumption or, or, or any, any aspect of his business. What I think you see is someone trying to make things as simple as possible so that they can focus on selling cars. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's my take. That's what I, that's what I think Steve Jobs was doing when he got rid of, you know, 90% of the Apple product line when he first came back. How does that make you think about M&A? For cooperative laundry, does M and A just look like a like a source of complexity, or is there a version of M? Yeah, I, I got my hands full. It would have to be. We're not going to force anything. I'm not going to grow just for the sake of growing. I think that M and A needs to be. We're not in the business of M and A, right? We're in the business of doing laundry. So if an M and A transaction makes the business of doing laundry, that I would absolutely consider it. But if it's just to make it bigger, that's that's not that's not a good reason. I think that's a great place to leave it. Better, not bigger. Yeah. Saying thank you so much. Learned a ton. Really enjoyed it. Really, really fantastic and very honest conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Peter. Appreciate it. Enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, check out Axial.com. There you'll find every episode of this podcast, as well as our recorded Axial member roundtables, some downloadable tools for dealmakers, Axial's quarterly league table rankings of top small business acquirers and investment banks, and lots of other useful content that we've created over the course of time. If you're interested in joining Axial as either an acquirer, an owner considering an exit, or as a sell-side M&A advisor, you can get started for free at Axial.com as well. Lastly, if you have ideas for podcast show guests, feel free to reach out to me directly at peter at axial.net. I promise I will respond. Thanks for listening.